Well, good morning. Uh, I hope you're all doing well, whether you're here with us in person at our Canandaigua campus or streaming with us online, viewing in, or you're watching uh, over there at Hopewell campus. I just want to say a warm welcome to you. My name is Brian. I'm the family ministries pastor here, and it's really an honor to be here with you. Now, I say this often whenever I get a chance to be up here, but I genuinely am excited about uh, the journey that we're going to embark on as we dig into God's word. But I know we've had a couple moments where we just stopped to pray over various things, and we as a church feel it's very important to, again, pause, acknowledge, and pray for the ongoing situation that's unfolding in Ukraine. Now, hear me, uh, I'm not pretending to know everything or or even know much about what's going on, but here's what I do know just from a fellow citizen among you, um, uh, you know, here. I do know that fear is sweeping the globe. I know that innocent men, women, and children are being caught up in horrific circumstances. I know that there are many invading soldiers who don't want to be there, who are being forced to fight. I know that there are defending soldiers who are scared, confused, and being asked to do more than what should ever be asked of a human being. I know that things are fragile economically around the entire globe. I know that historically, not so long ago, things like these can escalate very quickly. I know that the church is very present and active in places like Ukraine this very moment, and they're stepping up to care for the orphan and the widow in their extreme distress. And I know too that us sitting here, or wherever you may be, uh, we are not powerless as we talk about these things. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have access to the most powerful through prayer. And so I just want to give a moment of silence. And I'm asking you, if you fear God, to pray. Pray for peace. Pray for the end of innocent and senseless violence. Pray for the civilians. Pray for the soldiers. Pray for our world leaders who have to make incredibly tough decisions, including our own president. Pray for the churches in Ukraine. And so I'm going to ask you now, just a a moment of silence here. Go ahead and just pray. So pray. Heavenly Father, it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we lift up these prayers. We're speaking to the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and we lift lift these prayers up for the situation that are ongoing in Ukraine. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, uh, I'm biased, but I think you picked a good weekend to gather together because we're kicking off a brand new series here at Crosswinds called First. It's a series on stewardship about how putting God first in our lives will ultimately lead to a life of fulfillment. To help kick things off, I figured we could spend a few moments complaining about the snow. I mean, just when spring temperatures arrived and it all melted away and we had a little rain that washed our cars and the salt off the roads, it's all back. It's all back. So hear me, I know I live in upstate New York and I should expect snow. The problem for me is for how long I have to live with the snow. 
I'm good until like Jan 31st, but February 1st, I'm over it completely. There are things I enjoy doing up until February 1st in the snow, and one of those things is I actually really enjoy driving in the snow. Does anybody else here enjoy driving in the snow? Me, Chris, and Elijah, (laughs) four people like driving in the snow. Uh, This love for driving in the snow comes from when I was a teenager and when I was just learning how to drive. That's where I think it comes from. Both my mom and dad had a part to play in helping my siblings and I learn how to drive. My mom was definitely the more cautious, watching your every movement made, letting you know everything that's happening inside and outside the car, either through loud words or gasps. And my dad, he's kind of the opposite. I remember one time we were driving and he's like, I just love sitting here. I don't get to usually look at the landscape like this. And he's just staring off into the distance. It was the best. But when time came to learn how to drive in inclement weather and bad weather, uh, my dad was the preferred teacher of choice. He had a reputation. He would take us kids out to a big, vacant, snow-covered parking lot and there, He would make us get up to 15, 20 miles an hour and then lose control of the car, either through turning the steering wheel, slamming on the brakes, or or as I call it, goosing it, you know, just slamming the pedal to the floor. Now, uh, it was helpful as it taught us what it felt like to lose traction and then how to regain control a little bit, but I'll admit, as a 16-year-old, that was a lot of fun. And to this day, I still, whenever I get a chance, I have a five-speed manual, and I'll throw that e-brake any chance I get. Um, So... Fast forward a year, and I'm no longer a permitted driver, but now a licensed one. And on a particularly cold and snowy evening, my brother Kyle and I, we devised this plan that uh, we needed to now go up to Eastview Mall, and we lived in Farmington. So as casually as I could, I approached my parents, and I said something like, uh, hey, you know, uh, Kyle and I were hoping to get your blessing. We're going to go slow, real slow, uh, up to the Victor area real quick because I, uh, you know, need deodorant. After a long conversation, it was decided we could, but we would be taking their 1998 Nissan Pathfinder with four-wheel drive for added safety. Little did they know, this was the exact outcome we had hoped for, because the minivan wasn't going to cut it. Those old, unresponsive four-wheel drive vehicles, man, they were perfect for those long, swooping donuts. And as we got ready to go, just as I was about to walk out the door, keys in hand, my dad stopped me with these words, and he said, Brian... No goofing around. Drive carefully, go where you need to go, and get home safe. The whole point of getting the car out of his driveway was so that we could goof around in the snow. My intentions, my desire, my will was clear. I wanted to do donuts in the snow with his car. And now my dad's word had been spoken, and his will was now known for me. No donuts, no goofing around in his car. It literally could not have been more clear cut here. I had a choice to make. I could obey the will of my dad or I could not. Similar to my dad, God has spoken his will, his desire for how you and I as creation ought to live our lives. God has expectations for humanity. Every human being is then faced with the decision to obey the word of God and live according to his will or to disobey and neglect the will of God altogether. Now, I know this seems kind of overly simplistic, but it's absolutely true. So a good question that we could ask ourselves then is this. What motivates a person's obedience to God 
and vice versa, their disobedience against him. Another way to say it is, what propels someone to trust and obey the will of God as superior to their own will, and what propels someone to abandon or neglect it altogether? And I believe that the decision to obey or disobey the will of God is really a matter of whether or not you and I love God. And this is kind of the main idea of what we'll be exploring together today. If we love God, we will obey his word. If we love God, we'll obey his word. The opposite then can also be said. If we disobey God, or if we're not following God's commands, then we do not love him. And man, I know that sounds so blunt to hear it like that, but it's true. So how do we arrive at this simplistic understanding of love and obedience? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to the very first book of the New Testament, which is... Matthew, I heard heard one person say Matthew. Lisa, you can be a little more confident than that, okay? Uh, I get a chance to communicate with middle and high school students in the student ministry and do some teaching up there, and and we always find ourselves doing some trivia. So I'm going to ask you one more question, so prepare yourselves in just a couple of minutes. Uh, A little context for what we're about to do as we are about to see what we jump into Matthew 22 here is uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, it's nearing its end before he'd be eventually betrayed crucified, and then he would resurrect. By this point, everybody knew about Jesus in Israel, and many civilians were literally uh, jumping around town to town, chasing him, just trying to get a glimpse of who this Jesus was and to hear him and also possibly to be miraculously healed by him. However, as they had been doing for years, those in power who felt threatened by Jesus were attempting to kill him. Now, their plan at this point in time in Matthew 22 was to discredit his authority any way they could so that they could pin what's known as blasphemy on him, which was an offense punishable by death. Their thought was, if we can publicly trip up Jesus, even just a little bit, then we got him. And so as we jump into Matthew 22, we don't know for how long, but Jesus has been in the temple And he's been in direct confrontation with all these types of religious group leaders. Jesus had just escaped another one of their gotcha questions. And as we begin reading, this is where we're picking up in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22. We'll read, stop, read, stop. He says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Okay, so we have this prominent religious group that some of you have heard before, the Pharisees. And they just heard how the Sadducees, another prominent religious group, had just, I love this word, they were just silenced by Jesus. And so for an unknown amount of time, they call a timeout, the Pharisees, they huddle together, and they form a question that they're going to use to test, to try to trip up Jesus. And in verse 35, it says that one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So it's important to note that, uh, or yeah, it's important to note that this word "lawyer" it's an expert of the law. He wasn't an automotive attorney. He knew the law really, really well. And this is the person that the Pharisees chose to go and challenge Jesus directly. And this is the question that the Pharisees huddled together and dreamt up. They said, "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" Now, this was not the first time this question had ever been posed. Actually, this was a fairly common question that Jewish rabbis would bat around to one another. 
Here's the question, the Bible trivia question I told you about. Does anybody know how many laws are found in the Old Testament according to these Jewish religious leaders? Did you say 12? (laughs) Emma Ryan said 12. 613. 613. With so many laws, great debates happened at which ones were greater than others. A common term that would be used by these Jewish rabbis was heavy and light. Which of these 613s were the heavy ones, the ones that we really should be focusing on, and which ones are the light ones that maybe aren't as significant that if you don't do, that's okay? And so of all 613, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, which is the greatest of them all? And Jesus responds in verse 37. And Jesus, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your minds. At this point, again, the crowd, they would not have been shocked by the response because it is part of what's known as the Shema, a twice daily prayer that a devout Jew would pray. And he's literally, the command that he's referencing is from Deuteronomy 6.5. And that was something that a devout Jew would, would say twice a day. The potential shock would come what follows Jesus's first part of the response. But for now, Jesus states that the greatest commandment out of the 613, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The summation of all the laws, the greatest of them all, begins with love for God. A person's first love ought to be God. Now, what does this type of love actually look like? Well, to love God means we give our whole selves to him. To love God means we give our whole selves to him. Pastor Craig talks about this a lot. It's no secret, the word love is used in a lot of different ways in our common language. In the very same breath, I could utter that I love my son Charlie so much. Oh, and I also love the four-piece chicken tender meal at Chick-fil-A with a large waffle fry and chocolate shake. Love them both, but I love them differently. Hopefully, my love for my son is different than the one that I have for Chick-fil-A. So when I have been using the term love for God or If we love God, it's important to understand the kind of love that we're actually talking about here. And thankfully, Jesus helps us out a lot. When challenged about what's the most important thing for a human to do, he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The love that Jesus is talking about is not understood simply as an emotional attachment like I have for Chick-fil-A that could be ruined by a couple bad experiences, by the way. Rather, he says, we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. He's not breaking down these individual compartments. Rather, he's talking about the giving of one's whole self. Much more similar to the love that I have for my son, Charlie, where if you're a parent, you'll understand this. There's quite literally nothing I wouldn't do for him. I would give my whole self, my own life, if that's what was required for Charlie. And this is the love that God, uh, this is the love for God that Jesus says we ought to have. To love God means we give our whole selves to him. How can we be so sure? Well, I found this interesting. Uh, in the, the majority of the New Testament is written in ancient Greek. Uh, the English word which we translate here as love is this, and I'm going to butcher it, and if you speak ancient Greek, I apologize, but agapaho, all right, that we'll just pretend that's right. This is the same word that we see in the well-known verse, John 3.16. 
For God so agapahoed the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Agapaho is the kind of love that God not only shows towards us, but he himself demonstrated. We are to agapaho the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. To love God means we give our whole selves to him. The entirety of who we are as a person ought to be given to God. This is Jesus' response to the most important commandment given to humanity. So in light of this, just take a moment and reflect upon who you are as a person. Think about all that you have and all that you are. Think about your careers, your relationships, your influences, your family, your time, your hobbies, your money, your house, the cars you own, the food you have, the personalities that God has given you, your temperaments. Jesus says all of that given over to God, that is love. That's the love that we are to have for God. So to recap, the Pharisees devise this plan to trip up Jesus and they send out the expert to ask Jesus, which is the greatest of all 613 laws? And again, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he continues on. He says, this is the great and first commandment. So he answers their question and he establishes it as the first of what we will soon see is two, and he deems it as great. And what we can gather from this statement, what, we'll, what we're hopefully beginning to see is that love for God is really the basis for obedience, which in turn will then lead to true freedom. If we love God, we will obey him because every area of our life is given over to him. If we obey God, then we experience the truest sense of the word Freedom. You might be asking yourself, how can you be so sure? Well, I told you I, I get a chance to uh, be a part of our student ministry, which is an amazing ministry, and getting a chance to teach, with, uh, you know, look at God's word with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I always find it really helpful to remind middle and high school students who are growing into their individuality and the world at their fingertips to remind them that they are the created. God is the creator. The creator then has to know exactly how the created ought to live because he is the one who designed it. I didn't invent humanity, neither did you. So what makes us think that we know how to best live our lives? It doesn't make any sense. I didn't send the earth spinning into motion, nor did I build ecosystems or give order at a molecular level. God did all of that. And if this is true, which I firmly believe that it is, then I and we, we have to trust that it is he who ultimately knows what's best for us and how our lives ought to be lived. So when we position God as our first love, when we love him with our entirety of who we are and consider all that we have to be his, then we will experience for the first time actual freedom by living according to his will. His way is the best way. And so sprinkled all throughout scripture that God has given to us, we find God's will. We can call them commands or whatever you want to call it. These commands, they give us a clear indication, a clear understanding of how we ought to operate as humans. And when we live the way in which we were created, it is then that we are free. But the opposite is also true. And I have lived this, and I'm betting, willing to bet many of you have experienced this as well. When we live outside of God's way, when we live outside of God's will, there's no freedom there. 
There's only enslavement to the sin in which you're enslaved. Love for God is the basis for obedience, which will lead us to true freedom. Now, I never really finished my snowstorm Aaron story. So there I was. I was now sitting in my parents' driveway, keys in the ignition in their 4x4 SUV. The roads were covered beautifully. Snow was falling, and I had to make a choice. I could obey my dad's will for me, which was to not goof around in the snow, or I could abandon and neglect my dad's will, take up my will, and do what I wanted. What this moment really came down to was, do I agapoho my dad or not? Do I love my dad or not? Now, of course, the emotional attachment for my dad, that wasn't going to change whether I listened to him or not in this moment. But what I was really faced with was, did I love my dad in such a way that I fully trusted him so much that I'd be willing to take upon his will and abandon my own? That's the kind of love we're talking about here. And as I put the car into drive, I made up my mind if I love my dad or not. I'm not exaggerating. If my brother was here, he could confirm all these details. Within 45 seconds of leaving my parents' driveway, I had the Pathfinder stuck up in a neighbor's front yard. (laughs) After making a turn, I goosed it. The car spun out of control, and I ramped up into a neighbor's front lawn. In an attempt to get unstuck, I burned some turf and tore up their yard as I broke myself free. Now free about 10 minutes later, now up in Victor, in a parking lot, I slammed the front end into a snowbank, so much so that my brother Kyle was out pushing me out, which was dangerous. About five minutes after that, I was ripping donuts in a, we'll just say, a not-so-customer-friendly parking lot. I know this because mall security pulled me over. (laughs) And instead of confessing and being honest, I tried to lie my way out of it. I told them that I I was lost and I got stuck and I can't get traction here. To make all the matters worse, when I got home, I just told my dad everything went exactly as planned. Uh, I was deodorantless, by the way. Uh, But because I did not love my dad, I did not obey him. And in less than an hour, I was enslaved, man. I mean, I damaged my neighbor's front yard. I smashed private property, or I smashed my parents' vehicle into a snowbank. I trespassed on private property, and I lied to the guy who was just trying to do his job. And like I said, I already, I lied to my dad when I got home. Knowing they're here with me this morning, I'm like 85% sure I told them this. If not, this is the coming to Jesus moment, my forgiveness moment. (laughs) Now, this is... Just an earthly example meant to simply be an illustration. The first and great commandment is to love, God, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, our whole selves. When we do this, when we give our whole selves to God, his desires, this is kind of this miraculous thing that happens, his desires, his will for us becomes our own. If I love my dad like Jesus is telling us to love God, then I would have done as he said because I would have taken and made his will as my own will, even though there was still that part of me that really wanted to do donuts. If we love God like Jesus tells us we ought to, then even when we have that desire to lust, God's will supersedes our own and we do not do it because we love him enough. When we're tempted to slander or gossip, or comment a ridiculous post on social media. We don't, because we love God enough to know that's not what's best for us or our fellow people. 
As we battle through addictions, we may be tempted to use or to play, but we don't because we love God enough to know his will and his will has become our own. When we're tempted to hoard our money, we instead give freely as God calls us to give because we know that he knows what's best for us. When we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, he becomes first in our lives. And when God becomes first in our lives, we begin to then obey his word, his will for us. And consequently, it's a good consequence, we live the way we were created to live. And that, my friends, is true freedom. So up to this point, Jesus' response to the Pharisees, it wasn't terribly surprising to them, but his response is not yet finished. In its entirety, starting in verse 37, and Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this word neighbor is not meant to be understood as the literal person who's next to you at your house. This is any person that you have ever met or possibly could meet in your lifetime. So really, it's all people. And this was pointed, and this is perhaps the more shocking response that Jesus gave to his listeners. Jesus takes this command from Leviticus 19.18, and he says that this one is just like the first in significance. However, it does come second. The second is not fully possible unless the first one is happening, meaning something pretty interesting. Our love for God is revealed by how we love our neighbor. Remember the context of the scripture. Jesus, man, he's been dealing with these religious groups all day long who just kept hammering him with questions after questions after questions with the sole purpose to trip him up, to catch him, accuse him, and kill him. And I suspect upon hearing the first part of Jesus' response to what's the greatest commandment, they were all pretty happy with themselves. I bet you they thought that they loved God with all their heart, soul, mind. However, Jesus says, if you truly love God with your whole selves, then God's will will become a part of you. And if that's true, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Standing in front of these Pharisees, their neighbor, Jesus, they clearly did not love him. They were trying to kill him. Therefore, Jesus is exposing in their hearts that they, in fact, do not love God. And this is just the beginning of our new series called First. And so far, we have uncovered that if we love God, we will obey his word. And we use that word love, we're really talking about giving our whole selves to him kind of love. This kind of love is the basis for obedience, which leads us to true freedom And uh, we can do a simple inspection of if we truly love God or not by how we are loving our neighbor. So I'd like to talk to just those in this room that do not love God because you've never made a decision to do that. You're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And my question to you is, what is the barrier that's keeping you from becoming a follower of Jesus's and for the first time in your life living in true freedom? I mean, how many more lawns you got to tear up or snowbanks you need to hit or lies you need to tell them all security to realize that living according to your will is extremely problematic and you need help, a savior who is more than worth your love. So what is it? What's stopping you? Today could be your salvation day. 
where the barrier is broken down and in faith you step out and make a first time decision to follow Jesus, trusting God's will over your own. It's challenging, it's tough, it'll cost you, but it's the best decision you'll ever make. To those listening who at one time have loved God because you are a follower of Jesus's, you would describe yourself as a Christian, you believe in the things of scripture and of, of Christ, my question to you is, how are you doing today with your love for God? Another way I could word that is, do you love God today? This is a very tough question to answer objectively. And I think Jesus knew this. So he gave us a way to reveal our love for God. And that's found in the second commandment. The second command of the great. Just like it's the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the same kind of love that we're called to love God with. It's an agapaho kind of love. It's the will of God that we would love our neighbor like this as it's the second of two commands that we're considered by Jesus as the greatest of them all, the summation of them all. And so Christian, do you love God today? Think about the neighbors in your life. How are you doing loving them? We'll start easy. Do you love your kids like this? The way that God is calling you to love. How are you doing loving that spouse of yours or your siblings, your in-laws, the person down the hall in the apartment complex or across the street? Students, how are you doing loving your teachers and your peers and your administration? Parents, how are you doing loving your school, your students' school's administration? Do you show love to that cashier or that mechanic or that person that cuts you off? The doctor, you see. Do you love the Republicans? Do you love the Democrats? The answer to these questions reveal the condition of your heart and where you stand with your love for God. It's uncomfortable, I know it is, but it's true. If you're having a hard time loving your neighbor, especially if the neighbor thinks, acts, looks, and speaks differently than you, then you need to repent and turn your whole selves back to God in love. Because it's only then when we love God that we will obey his word. And it's only when we obey his word that we live in freedom. We will trust that his ways are better than our own. And freedom will be found in the kingdom of God. Don't miss this. The kingdom of God will advance not only in your heart, but in your neighbor's heart, who you love the way that God is calling you to love. I will conclude with something that the Apostle John once said in his letters, and it's highly likely, it doesn't say it, but it's highly likely that the Apostle John would have been present for this whole interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And after Jesus had been killed, uh, you know, resurrected, he would go on years and years and years later, and he would write these words, and he would say this in 1 John 4. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. God, I love how uh, for many in here, this is a familiar scripture. We've heard this before. But every time we read your word, it's living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword and it has a unique ability to just meet us in the moment, the season of life in which we're at. 
And these are really hard questions to ask God. Do we love you? I think everybody here that believes in you would say that we do. But as we reflect upon how we're doing loving our neighbors, maybe that maybe isn't the case. And so I pray for, for true repentance of hearts, if we're struggling to love our neighbor, God, I pray you would show us how to love our neighbors that are different from us. God, help us have the same kind of love for them that you have for us. That is your will. Lead us and usher us into that time of our lives where it's truly free, where we obey your word, God. And when we, uh, when we love you, we obey your word, there's true freedom there, and that's all kind of shown by how we love our neighbors. And so, God, I know your word doesn't go out, without, it doesn't go out void. Uh, it is doing something, and I pray that every single person here walks out of here being drawn closer to you, uh, and we just think about this scripture throughout the week. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.